Hi, Jill. You have a new grandbaby. Jack. Jill. Jill has a new grandbaby. You have one too? Yes. What's your grandbaby's name? Uh, Briar. 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 We got two new ones. Isn't that great? Woohoo. Woohoo. You have one too, Debbie? Wow, I shouldn't have mentioned this because you're taking up more of my time now. Well, it's, it's, he's like six weeks old, I not count anymore, I guess. All right, let's get started. So we're going to be looking at um, the wins, winsome witness and apologetic blunders. Um, it's not in the outline, you'll just figure it out when we get there as we it's woven through all of this. But we're really looking at responding to those who believe in a fake Jesus. How are we to respond? And a lot depends on where the people that believe in a fake Jesus are. Um, we first look at those who believe in the fake Jesus we've heard all about, uh, the Jesus of their own choosing uh, that are in the world that don't know the Lord Jesus. But we also have, shockingly, people in the church who believe in a fake Jesus. And what this really boils down to is that if you believe in a fake Jesus, that's the time that we need to ask, you know, to test ourselves to see if we really are in the faith. So we're going to dig into that a little more clearly today. But to be clear, any person, um, any position on Jesus that denies any part of his revealed attributes is the love of fake Jesus. Matthew made that very clear. So we don't have the option of picking and choosing what Jesus that we want to follow. Um, so I was in uh, Revelation 19, as Matthew was. And uh, I just want to read this, how we sometimes can read Scripture. Um, so Revelation 19, 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Oh, we'll stop and say, I like that. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Oh, I don't think I like that so much. And then we keep on reading, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword. Uh, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an eye, a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Well, oh, I don't like that even more. But then we keep reading, we say, but on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, I like that. And so we can look at Scripture and actually pick and choose as we go. It fascinates me that... Um, I don't know, are people still gathering in auditoriums around the country about once a year, singing the Hallelujah Chorus? They did that for many years. And you have believers that are there singing, and you have non-believers singing King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Yeah, you do, Michelle. You don't believe me? Oh, okay. You're shaking your head. Yeah, um, they, um, people like their version of Jesus, and they're willing to worship that person of Jesus, or at least to like him a whole lot. So I want to look at uh, the three audiences that uh, we must have in mind when we think about those who love a false Jesus. The first are the, those in the world, the non-believers, who nonetheless have an, an opinion about Jesus, whether true or false. Um, and they ultimately reject the Jesus that they understand. And their views, or they accept the Jesus they understand, it's just not the real Jesus. And I think Dennis mentioned this, that you know, their views range from indifferent, I'm, I'm fine with what you believe, but don't judge me for what I believe, to uh, simplistic, he was a good teacher. Jesus is a good teacher. Have you heard that one? Uh, or um, hostile and angry. How could you believe in a Jesus that contends people to hell? So um, what we want to look at uh, is 
What are some of the responses that we might have for people in the world when we encounter them? Or, let me suggest to you, we even think about them. Uh, we don't spend a whole lot of time uh, having theological discussions or witnessing about Jesus. We should. But I'm going to suggest that if you're like me, I don't spend as much time as I should having those conversations. But I do a whole lot of thinking about non-believers. And some of that thinking can get to be pretty ugly. Let me suggest to you, there's only one thing that we should be thinking about non-believers and have no other expectation. We should be thinking that they need to come to Jesus. It's okay to say amen. That's what we should be thinking, that they need to come to Jesus. So there's some wrong responses. Uh, Matthew and uh, Dennis talked about judging. Um, only Jesus is the judge. We just read that in Revelation 19. But uh, what I want to say in this wrong response is that we take Jesus' place and deciding who gets to go to heaven and who has to go to hell. And so we find ourselves thinking, maybe you haven't, but I have, that guy deserves to go to hell. Maybe in your carnal moment, but I've been there. This guy is so bad, he deserves to go to hell. And I put myself in Jesus' place. Uh, I hope God strikes him dead. Oh, okay. I've heard that before. Um, but maybe we want to soften it up a little bit. You know, that guy is heading for eternal judgment. And if he doesn't get it right... Well, we know what's going to happen. Well, that's actually true, but if we say it with a hardened heart, it's a wrong response and it grieves God. Um, as, um, the, God's word makes it clear that Jesus is the judge of the world. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. This is in your outline, by the way. Um, For what have I to do with judging others? It's not those inside the church whom you're to judge. God judges those outside. Is it not, I knew that didn't sound right. Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So again, this is passage is dealing with people who are habitually sinning within the church. We need to deal with them within the church differently than we think about those outside the church. God and God alone judges those who are apart from him. Uh, and when we take place in uh, uh, God's place in judging others, Jesus' place in judging others, we, we develop a callous and hardened heart, don't we? We keep thinking and let that creep into our minds, and we lose the passion for lost souls. When we take Jesus' place judging others, we lose our passion for lost souls. Um, that's pretty serious. We need to be careful. Uh, secondly, uh, our wrong attitude or wrong response is anger or ridicule. I don't know about you, but have you ever been angry at people who abuse the name of Christ? I have, and some of that anger is a righteous anger, but oftentimes our anger is not that. Um, how's this? Uh, ridicule. Uh, that guy's an idiot. Or he's an airhead. You know, again, James 1, 19 and 20, know this, my beloved brothers, that every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And then the passage we think about within the church, and it is applied to the church, let all, uh, Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So you should have in your outline, by the way, A is judging, B is anger or ridicule. Um, and this anger or ridicule could be an outright dismissal. Um, that guy doesn't even know what he's talking about, so I'm, he's not worthy of me taking my time to engage in a meaningful conversation about Jesus. Let's be careful about that. And then there's, see, simplistic arguments. Um, simplistic arguments are simply, look, if you took the time to read the Bible, you'd get it. You know? 
uh, just go read the book of John. Well, sometimes we actually want them to read, the, we always want them to read the book of John, not just sometimes. But if we just, that's all we think about, why, why do we expect that people are going to respond to uh, our carefully crafted arguments for Jesus when they're blinded? Um, their, their minds are blinded. The natural person, I think Dennis used this first, second, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person is the unsaved person. So the most persuasive argument that we could ever make to non-believers that love a fake Jesus is to think that our persuasion is going to do the trick, going to get them over the line. Only the work of the Holy Spirit touching the heart and enlightening the unbeliever will bring them into faith with Jesus. There's a, one of my most... Uh, The book, a book that uh, touched my heart a couple years ago was uh, this book by a former Muslim, Muslim named Nabil Qureshi. He wrote a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Some of you have read that. Very powerful. He had faithful, he was a, a, he was a, 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 a Muslim, but he had a faithful Christian friends who witnessed to, to him and argued with him in a kind way um, about Jesus and why Jesus is God. And, um, but he couldn't get past the Muslim teaching that the doctrine of the Trinity is polytheistic and therefore it's blasphemous. How could you have three people be one God? That's polytheistic. And he couldn't accept that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are eternally coexistent and equal with God in every respect. So uh, he's, he's writing this and he's sitting in, in his book and he's sitting in his chemistry class in college. And the professor was explaining that, and bear with me here, a certain nitrate molecules have resonance. Now, we don't have to worry about all that, but here's what it means. That some molecules of nitrate can exist in three separate forms at the same time. And he's saying the entire class is just going blank. Like, what? And all of a sudden, he's, he's just zeroed in on it. The Holy Spirit begins to touch his heart. And he'd heard the arguments for Jesus, but the Spirit hadn't touched him. And God used the chemistry class about nitrates to change his heart. Isn't that amazing? We don't have to do it all. And she was saying that the molecule with resonance is every one of its structures at every point in time, yet no single one of its structures at any point in time. And so resonance is that a molecule can have three different structures at the same time, but never at any point in time one of them, but never all of them. Anyway, so he writes... My eyes rested on the three separate structures of nitrate on the wall, my mind assembling the pieces. One molecule of nitrate is all three resonant structures all the, sa- all the time and never just one of them. The three are separate, but all the same, and they are one. They are three in one, and that's when it clicked. If there are things in this world that can be three in one, even incomprehensibly so, then why cannot God? And God used that, the creation that Jesus created, and holds together by the word of his power to show him the truth of the Trinity. Now, no illustration is perfect. We understand that. We'll never understand all that there is to know about the Trinity. But it was enough to give him saving faith. And the Karishi went on to be a powerful witness uh, for the Lord, evangelist, in his community. Um, So D is withdrawal. 
God never, God's word never tells us to sequester ourselves completely from non-believers. Sometimes he takes us out of situations um, that uh, are harmful. But we're not to, uh, we certainly know that, we, that we're not to love the world or the things in the world. We're not to be conformed to the world. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. But we also know that we're not to be unequally yoked with non-believers. We are to engage the world, though, with the gospel of Christ. Um, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And I uh, worked in a Christian environment for uh, a lot of years, well, like 40 years, Christian organization. And um, I loved it there. We, we had chapel every week. We sang songs. We had the, the word was opened up. I got to teach. It was a great thing. Uh, we worked a 39-hour week. We worshiped for one hour. And uh, the problem with that was what? I rarely saw a non-believer. I was surrounded by 300 and some believers. And my engagement in the world wasn't that much. I'm not saying that was a bad thing. I, I, I loved my years at ECCU. It was a great experience. And God used it in many ways. But uh, now I'm uh, working with Matthew in a secular environment. And um, it's a completely different experience. Oh my goodness, these, most of these people don't know Jesus. And uh, I, I, my whole vocabulary changes and the way I interact with people changes. I try to be winsome and, and share with them the gospel when I can, but it's a whole different experience. Um, and I'm finding great joy in engaging the world. Um, so let's be careful we don't withdraw. And third... Uh, E here, I don't know what number, it's at five, I guess, but it's E in your outline. Compromise, and this is the one that we want to especially look at here. Compromise is especially insidious because it begins with a, oftentimes with a mostly right understanding of the truth of the real Jesus. But it settles for something less in the name of, you can guess here, peace and love and tolerance and kindness. And we don't want to force ourselves on other people, particularly within the church. So um, we are to be, um, but we are to be, we are to be uh, kind, and we are to be gentle, and we are to be winsome, that is, without guile, but we're never to yield one iota of truth about Jesus. To deny any clear truth about Jesus or his teaching is to deny the real Jesus. You've heard that over and over again tonight. That's why Paul told Timothy to wage the good warfare, wage the good fight, he told him, keep watch, a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Then he said, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Paul himself, at the close of the ministry, his ministry said, I have fought the good fight. There is a fight going on for the truth about Jesus. And let's be clear about that. And some of the uh, most insidious heresies promoted by some pastors and teachers are the truths about Jesus and the teachings of Jesus that are never taught. Let's stop right there. Some of the most insidious heresies taught about Jesus and compromises are by pastors and teachers the things that they never teach. They just don't teach the whole truth about Jesus. They pick and choose what they want and people buy into that. A Jesus who only loves, but would never allow anyone to handle eternal punishment. Um, I'm gonna, the rest of my notes are very similar to what you already heard, so I'm going to move on, okay? 
Let's be careful. We cannot compromise any part of the real Jesus. When we do, we deny the real Jesus. Let's look at some helpful responses. The first one under helpful responses is compassionate. Compassionate. Uh, we want to approach non-believers when we have dialogue with them with hearts of mercy. Be gentle and kind. We want to, we want to be receptive. We want them to be receptive to the words that we have to say, not ridiculing. A Proverbs 25.11 helped me a lot in a lot, of, a lot of applications. Like apples of gold in settings of silver, so is a word rightly spoken. People will hear that. Um, John MacArthur says in his commentary, we may hate the evil world system that is the enemy of God, but we are not to see those in it as our personal enemies. So we can hate the world system, but those who don't know Jesus aren't our enemies. MacArthur goes on to say they are our mission field. They are our mission field. And I will tell you there have been times when I myself pretty close to hating some non-believers, what they say about Jesus, when they defame him, when they twist the truth about Jesus. We're talking about non-believers. It's a different story when we're talking about those who profess faith in Christ. Jesus had compassion, Mark 6, 34. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. The response that Jesus had was compassion and then speaking the truth to them about himself. Next we find in B is um, helpful responses are, is, is understanding. Understanding, I'll just say this. Again, um, understanding is the world cannot understand the real Jesus. Cannot understand him because the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. We need to understand that. We need to be reminded that, therefore the grace of God, go I. We need to be reminded that um, we were once blind, that we were once dead in our trespasses before God opened our blind eyes and our deaf ears and allowed us to hear and to see the things that we could never see before. And that transformation should cause us to be understanding and compassionate towards those who do not know the Lord. And the number C is, or letter C is equipped. Helpful response is equipped. We need to be prepared to engage the world, not just hope that, uh, that they somehow will just, we can read John 3.16 and hope that that's enough. Sometimes it is, by the way. But we need, to, uh, we need to be able to counter the arguments against the real Jesus in a logical way, understanding that our best argument will never change anybody's mind apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. But uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it, how? With gentleness and respect. But never compromise. Jesus, the Lord, as holy. We are to prepare our minds for action, it tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1. And Jesus said in um, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 13, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. 
be understanding. Let's be winsome. Let's not try to put on something that we are not. Let's understand instead what we were, that God plucked us out of the miry clay and set our feet upon the solid rock of the Lord Jesus. And I want to just share with you um, this preparedness that we're just talking about, this um, equip that we're just talking about, uh, means that we need to be students of God's word, diligent students of God's word. That's what, that's what it tells us. You study to show yourself approved unto God. The fourth thing here, the number, letter D, is praying. I think this is the most important thing we can do. It's not just pray or, yeah, I'll throw up a prayer. This is actually the number one thing we should be doing. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, first of all, and this first of all means of the most important, first most important on some sequence, the most important thing I can tell you then, I urge you that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life and godly uh, and dignified in every, every way. And all of this in the context of God's wanting to see people come to faith in him. Uh, that's the first importance. We ought to be praying, praying for all people, praying for those who don't know the Lord. Uh, our hearts ought to be breaking for those who don't know the Lord. And um, we should be praying for kings. Um, we should be praying, praying, this is our class in Logos class this morning. We should be praying for the president. If uh, we should be praying, we should have been praying for Barack Obama. And we should pray for Donald Trump. We should pray earnestly. God would touch his heart and change him. I don't know his... I don't know if he knows the Lord. I, I hope maybe there's some transformation has happened there. I can't tell. But I do know this, that we're called to pray for him and pray earnestly for him. And all those in positions of authority in our government, God tells us that. I don't know about you, but have you ever disliked or hated someone so much that you, that you never thought to pray for that person? Have you ever been there? Uh, I have. I mean, um, maybe hatred, mm, a little bit of that creeps in. I've already said that. But you just dislike someone. I don't like their politics, especially. I don't like it that they support, uh, that they're pro, pro-abortionists. They want to kill little babies. The worst, most heinous crime, I think, that you can imagine. So because they're caught up in that evil system of thinking, because their minds are blinded, I don't want to pray for them. Well, the opposite is exactly the case, isn't it? God calls us to pray for those who are apart from him. Um, yeah, I'm, I was debating whether I wanted to share this with you for the sake of time, but I think I'm going to be able to do this. Um, so earlier this year, uh, there was a presidential researcher. Her name was, uh, is uh, Karen uh, Tumulti, and uh, she came across this uh, letter from August 7, 1982, uh, in a cardboard box belonging to Nancy Reagan. And uh, there was a handwritten letter uh, on White House stationery, very carefully crafted by President Reagan. And his heart was breaking for his father-in-law, a renowned neurosurgeon who was just days away from dying. In fact, he died two weeks later. His name was uh, Loyal Davis. And um, by any definition, Loyal Davis was an atheist. And... Um, in fact, Dr. Davis, he was, uh, once wrote this. He says, I've never been able to subscribe to the divinity of Jesus Christ. 
nor his virgin birth. I don't believe in his resurrection or, or heaven or hell as places. If we're remembered and discussed with pleasure and happiness after death, this is our heavenly reward. Well, somebody had, in fact, probably millions of people, of many people in the world, had prayed for President Reagan, who was not exactly a choir boy, as it were, in his youthful days. Um, he was... Um, he lived a life that uh, was not honoring to God in any way. But I'll tell you this, that at one point, God touched his heart. And um, um, he never got fully grounded in the word, but I think he, he uh, ended up with a saving faith in Christ. And I'll tell you why. He believed um, that everyone would someday face a day of judgment. And he knew his father-in-law would face that day. So, as she writes, the most powerful man in the world put everything else aside on that Saturday morning, sitting in the White House, and he took pen in hand and set out on an urgent mission to rescue a soul. So here's how it goes. Dear Loyal, I hope you forgive me for this, but I've been wanting to write you ever since we talked on the phone. I'm aware of the strain you were under and believe with all my heart that there's help for that. He talks about, then he goes on and talks about the great love between a Dr. Uh, Davis and his wife Edith and he says we've been promised this is only a part of life that is the love that we have for one another and that a greater life a greater glory awaits us this is President Reagan writing and this wasn't even discovered until just a few uh, weeks ago and awaits you together one day and and that and all that is required is that you and I think he meant both Dr. Davis and his wife that you believe and tell God to put your uh, you put yourself in his hands well that sounds hmm not too strong. Then he goes on. He quotes John 3.16. God's promise of eternal life to all who accept him. I'm reading that from the article. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish and have everlasting life. And let me be clear. While we're to be good apologists, sometimes that verse is enough. The Holy Spirit can take that verse. So he said this, and he concludes the letter. We've been promised that all we have to do is ask God in Jesus' name to help when we've done all we can. When we've come to the end of our strength and abilities, we'll have that help. And of course, he meant through Jesus. Reagan told Davis, we only have to trust and have faith in his infinite goodness and mercy. I'm going to tell you, some folks don't have a perfect understanding of the Lord Jesus. They have, in fact, part of what they whom they worship is not the full real Jesus. But they understand enough to be saved, and I'm going to touch on that a little bit more. Um, so, non-believers have an opinion about Jesus, the first thing. They reject the Jesus they understand. The second class of, of those who love a false Jesus are those in the church who have wrong views about Jesus and lead others astray. Those in the church who lead others astray. And there's two sets of those. A, this is in your notes, now you want to you fill in the blanks. The first is, 2A, professing believers who have swerved from the faith. Professing believers who have swerved from the faith. What's the greatest danger facing the church? Let's be clear about that. It's not from the non-believers in the world. The greatest danger we face in the church are false teachers from within. And the Bible gives clear instructions to the church when that happens. And again, 1 Timothy uh, um, 
118, this I charge to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, people in the church, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. The suggestion here is they were believers. But they had wandered from the faith, and later on he says they swerved from the faith. And in this case, Paul handed them over to Satan. I mean, learn not to blaspheme. The church needs to deal with those who teach false, who try to lead others astray, who have swerved from the faith. And then there's, um, there's uh, this is B now, there's almost what I call almost believers, people that come this close to believing in Jesus. They've tasted the truth, almost believers who have tasted the truth. Uh, they've come this close, but they've never fully believed in the real Jesus. In Acts chapter 20 and verses 26 to 30, it says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, speaking to the elders in Ephesus. This is Paul speaking to them. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. But I thank God that we have faithful teachers at Grace Church. Amen? We do. Uh, I will tell you it's, it, that the elders in this church vet every single person who was to teach here, from the little tiny kids all the way through adults. The elders have to approve everyone who teaches. And we pay close attention. Because we do not want false teaching, whether it's intentional or somehow just through ignorance, to creep in. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says... In verse 1, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedience to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Be careful about that, even within the church. I don't think we have any people at Grace Church, I, I, I pray not, that are, are people that are arrogant, proud, disobedient, but yet there are times when maybe even you, maybe me, fall into that. We have the appearance of godliness. We put on our godly, our godly shirts and, and godly shoes, and, but in our hearts, we're thinking unholy and ungodly things, and we deny who Jesus is. In 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their own sensuality because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. This is warnings to the church. Their condemnation is from long ago. It's not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. 
For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. There are pastors all across this country, and I would suggest around the world, who preach a false Jesus, who stand up there behind their pulpits or lecterns in their Hawaiian shirts, oh, and <laughs> they preach an incomplete Jesus. They preach a false Jesus. People say, oh, that's so wonderful. Jesus loves me. I'm just, that's all I need. That's all people hear. Jesus wants me to be rich. Jesus will heal my every disease. I'll never be sick again. And they hear all of these things that are a partial truth, but not the real truth. Jesus never wants anybody to go to hell. And the false Jesus is preached at hundreds, thousands of churches in this country today. One of the greatest shames we could ever think to happen. So, we are to uh, respond to non-believers who nonetheless have an opinion about Jesus, whether true or false. They reject the Jesus they understand. And those in the church who have wrong views about Jesus and are convinced they're right, but they seek to influence others. And then finally, we've come to, this is the third class, those in the church who are not grounded in the faith and have a wrong or weak understanding of what Scripture teaches about Jesus. Those in the church who are not grounded in the faith, they have a wrong or weak understanding of what Scripture teaches about Jesus. Some are saved. They come to saving faith. And some have never got there. We find the first group of those within the church who are weak in their faith are those who resist correction and persist in wrong understanding. Stubborn people. What we believe about Jesus, let me tell you, will always show up in our behavior. I think the front of your, I, don't, I didn't bring my, um, do we have the GBI logo on your, on your um, books? Yeah. And, and what's the verse on there? 2 Timothy 3.16, you all have it memorized, right? All scripture is what? Breathed out by God and is what? For what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Well, wait a minute. That's all, that's all really great stuff, but that's for the other guy. We should be constantly as believers, those especially that are mature in the faith or more mature in the faith, should be helping one another to see the real Jesus. We should be constantly listening to what we're saying to each other. We're not, the, we're not the real Jesus Nazi police. Let's be careful about that. But we want to encourage one another. We want to encourage one another in the faith. And there is a time that there needs to be not just teaching, but sometimes reproof, correction, training, righteousness. I would suggest to you that a lot of times that falls upon the elders in the church. You won't ever wonder what the elders do. Sometimes it's this. But we can hold one another accountable, can we not? But there are people that say they love Jesus, but they never want to be corrected. They never want to be reproved. They never want to have training in righteousness. They just want to believe in what they want to believe. So I had a guy come to me recently, wanted me to adjudicate, I don't know why me, um, his feud that he was having with a neighbor, it happened to be in an industrial park, and he owned one, one part of the building and another guy owned the other part. And they, were, they had a 13-year feud over, are you ready? Parking spaces. And um, this, uh, this is a long, par- long part of the story, but let me just tell you this, that during the course of the discussion, I said, so, um, oh, he was telling me about what a good neighbor he's been. I later found out he hasn't been such a good neighbor. Uh, there's been all kinds of chicanery going on. But he said, oh, yeah, I came, o- I came by one day after church, and I saw my neighbor's 
uh, bay door open and I called the police and had them come close it. I'm such a good guy, is what he was saying. And I, so he's going on and on, and I finally stops. Oh, um, tell me, Richard, um, not his real name. Um, I heard you said you stopped by after church. What church do you go to? And he names the church, and I'm thinking, well, they might teach Jesus there. Um, so I said, so are you a believer, follower of Christ? And he said, yeah, I, yeah, I am. So you know Jesus? Yeah. And I said, well, I'm a believer too. And it sounds to me like you have been holding on to a root of bitterness and anger. And he wasn't expecting this. <laughs> he thought I was going to tell him how to take care of his neighbor. I says, you know, uh, maybe this isn't worth 13 years of anger and bitterness and hostility. Um, maybe you just need to let this go. Has, tell me this, has there ever been a time when you didn't have enough parking spaces to, for your shop, for your customers and you? No, 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 there's plenty. Oh, so you've never been short on a parking space? No. You need to let it go as a believer. I'm charging you as a believer. You need to let it go. You need to, one, forgive. You need to turn the other cheek. You need to let the peace of Christ rule in your part. You need to be kind and tenderhearted. And he was like, whoa, <laughs> I wasn't expecting that response. But that's what we need to do, fellow believers. If you're going to tell me that you're a believer in Christ and the real Jesus, then if I say that, we better act like it. Amen? Better act like it. No place for that. By the way, he did email me today, interestingly, of all days. He says, thank you so much for the time that we spent together. He didn't tell me that he'd repented or anything, but at least <laughs> I'm praying that God will work in his heart. I mean, that's what we should do, right? And then there's uh, finally the uh, true believers who, uh, when corrected, this is B, true believers, when corrected, rejoice in the real Jesus. People that, that realize that they didn't, that they'd made a mistake or they just didn't know all there was to know about Jesus. And um, they're pretty excited about it. True believers, when they learn more about Jesus, rejoice. And the great news is that even those of us who have been in the faith for a long, long time, um, don't know all there is to know about Jesus. We only know this much. And every little bit that I get to learn about Jesus, even today, I get to rejoice in the real Jesus. Um, Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is, is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven, this is again Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Wow. By the way, I found a pearl this morning under one of the chairs. I don't know if it was real or not, but I just about went out and sold all I had. But when we hear more about Jesus, we rejoice. We're willing to give up the things that we cherish the most for more of Jesus. Believers in Jesus, hear this. God will not judge you for what you don't know about Jesus. This will never know all of that. But he will judge us what you do know for what you do know or should know and choose not to believe. Yeah? God will hold us accountable for denying any part of Jesus. Or even not wanting to know. Going back to the front of our, of our syllabus. Study to show ourselves approved unto God. No, that wasn't there. But we're to study 
show ourselves. We're to be students of God's word and receive everything we hear with great joy. True believers willingly give up all the things of this world that this world values in order to have more of what God values. True believers hunger for more of the real Jesus, and when they discover another eternal truth, they rejoice with great joy. I put some verses down at the bottom here. If you want to be prepared to respond to those who love a fake Jesus, immerse yourself in God's word. Uh, I suggest in, read Hebrews 1. Jesus the radiance of God's glory. Read John 1. Read Ephesians 1. Read Colossians 1. Read books that uh, will strengthen you in your faith and will help you to respond to a world who knows not the real Jesus.